Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Having a chance to uh, meet you. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at the King's Church and have the privilege of opening up God's Word for us uh, this morning as I do most weeks. Uh, before we get started, if you're in Kingdom Kids, you can head uh, to the door there and meet Mr. Rob and Assembly for uh, your time back at Kingdom Kids. Have a good time. We're a little more wobbly than usual up here. It makes me a little nervous. See what happens. <laughs> Well, as uh, Chelsea mentioned in the welcome, we are uh, celebrating uh, kind of our one-year anniversary since launching the King's Church, which is exciting. Can we praise God for one year of faithfulness? Um, man, it's been, it's been really hard for me to try to summarize what all has happened in a year. Um, it feels like it's been like five years. Anybody else? Like, I feel like we've been doing this for a long time. Um, in a good way. I'm not tired of you guys. In a good way. It feels like it's been a long time, but uh, I know it's been a very um, full year. It uh, feels like we've had lots of moments to uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, as the scriptures uh, tell us to do so. Um, but as I reflect on the last year, man, I'm just so incredibly grateful. I'm grateful for uh, you guys who are here, who have been rolling with us for a while, and uh, it really feels like this is something that God is building. And so believe me, when I um, look back with gratitude, I, I'm really grateful that God has literally brought people here from all across the country. Like so many of you just like, picked Lakeland on a map and had no idea this was going to be here, which is uh, awesome because it reminds me that this has really nothing to do with my coolness, right? Like you literally just showed up and God was like, hey, in my sovereignty, here are some incredible people, which, man, I'm so grateful for that. Um, When I get to share about our church and what's happening at the King's Church, um, I'm always um, quick just to be grateful for the culture that is here. And I love the culture that's a part of this church. You know, we have some core values here that we talk about, um, but I don't think we actually just talk about them. I think they actually are seen in our midst. And if those core values, if you've been around, they're um, finding beauty in the ordinary, fighting to show up, and faithfully pursuing meaningful conversations. And I love that um, that seems to be the culture here. That seems to be um, what the Lord is building here. And I'm just really grateful that we get to be a part of it. So as we uh, reflect on one year, we filmed this really awesome video, had it all ready to go this morning, and then technology, of course, has uh, ruined that for us. So um, we'll post that this afternoon. Actually, if you go on the website, we have a little stories tab, and it's been up there all week, so you could have got a sneak peek if you wanted it. Uh, But we'll post that this afternoon and be sure to show that next week just so we can celebrate some of the new faces that we've met uh, since launching one year ago. Um, And we're going to continue celebrating tonight, so I hope you can come out tonight, 5 o'clock, to Trinity Presbyterian. We're going to be having a member meeting and celebration, and uh, just continuing to thank the Lord for what he's done and cast a little vision for what the future holds. Uh, But before we jump into our text this morning, it feels appropriate just to pause and to pray, and to thank the Lord for what he's done, and to ask him to continue to move above and beyond what we can expect or plan or dream for, as he's already done in our midst. And so, uh, let's pause, and let's just go to the Lord, let's thank him and ask him to continue to move. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we, uh, this morning, are people who are gathered and are uh, really grateful. God, thank you for the work that you have done to build this church. Uh, Thank you that once was a dream and an idea some six, seven years ago, 
uh, God, that actually was from you, that you have uh, built this, God, that you have brought people, you have uh, called people to yourself, and you do so through the family of the church. And so, God, I am so grateful as I get to pastor this church for the people you brought here. Uh, Lord, I know so many in this room are grateful for the brothers and sisters in Christ that have been found. And so, Lord, I pray as we uh, think about what's happening here at the King's Church, that you would protect us from pride, God, that you would never give us a sense of arrival, but that we would be humble. We would be a people who are dependent upon you. We'd be a people who pray for you to move and move in mighty ways, and that we would be a people who seek to be faithful to the commission you've given us, that Jesus, we know you are on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, and you do that through people like us. How crazy is that? And so, God, may you continue to stir up this body to declare and display the good news of the gospel uh, here and around the world as we have opportunities to do so. So, God, I'm just grateful this morning as we turn our attention to your word. May you teach it to us this morning. Holy Spirit, may you instill this into our hearts. May we have ears to, to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive from you. And as we talk about forgiveness, Lord, we know that forgiveness is the entrance into this kingdom that you have brought. So this morning, for those who do not have that forgiveness, may they ask for it. And for those who do, may we live a life that is evident of that forgiveness to the watching world. So be with us as we're in your text now. Thanks for giving it to us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we transition into our uh, parable today, as we're doing a series through the parables of Jesus, uh, I want to make an observation. We see at the beginning here that uh, Peter is asking Jesus some questions about the nature of forgiveness and how many times he needs to forgive. And I was reminded in that that we, in general, are a people who really like to know what the bare minimum is, aren't we? Right, this kind of gave me flashbacks to being a teacher, right? If you're a teacher, you get this, right? You, you give the instructions, you give the homework, you give whatever the assignment is, and you can see it, the gears beginning to turn, right? And they're, they're thinking, all right, what's the least possible amount of work that I have to do in order to get what I need on this grade, right? So what's the word count again? When, are you sure this is due tomorrow? What if I bring it at the end of the period, not the beginning of the period, right? Um, do we really have to do this today? If you're a parent, you know the bare minimum discussion, right? You instruct your children to do the dishes. They're like, well, what exactly are the dishes, right? Like, all the dishes, some of the dishes. I mean, we, you get this. We're a people who really like the bare minimum, don't we? And Peter here is asking questions about the bare minimum. He's trying to get Jesus to answer, hey, if somebody sins against me, exactly how many times do I have to forgive them? I mean, surely there's a bare minimum amount here that we can arrive at. And what this passage is going to warn us about and what Jesus is going to warn us about is that we can't have that bare minimum attitude or posture in our relationships with others. In fact, if we do, there's going to be serious consequences if that occurs. Jesus is saying it's not appropriate within the kingdom of God to think in the context of the bare minimum. Instead, something else has to be. And so as we think about this idea of forgiveness, if you listen to the story, right, that's what we're talking about is this idea of forgiveness. Uh, I think we really like the idea of forgiveness, don't we? I mean, we respect those who are forgiving. Whenever a big cultural moment happens where someone musters up the energy to forgive someone who clearly was in the wrong, right, we admire that. So often forgiveness is central to the stories and the books and the movies that we tell that shape and form us as human beings, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, forgiveness is incredibly difficult, isn't it? Forgiveness is not an easy task. 
It's one thing to celebrate forgiveness when we see it. It's a whole other thing to be the ones who are actually having to forgive. Right? When we've actually been wronged, when there's a real wound, when there's a real hurt that's been caused, it's a whole other discussion to then offer that forgiveness. So this morning, as we look at this text, I just want to ask the question, how do we actually forgive? Like, How do we actually have the power to do so? Where does that come from? And the good news is that Jesus is going to remind us of the gospel in this parable, and the gospel is going to give us both the help and the hope that we need to be a forgiving people. So here's the main idea, I think, that we're going to see in this parable. Those who grasp the enormity of their own forgiveness in Christ will then offer that forgiveness to others. Very simple. Those who grasp the enormity of their own forgiveness in Christ will then offer that same forgiveness to others. And as we work through the story, I want to make kind of three observations, three movements as we go. We're going to begin with the forgiveness of the king, and then look at the unforgiveness of the servant, and then finally what the life of forgiveness looks like within the kingdom. And so if we go back to the parable, Peter's questions, we're going to actually come back to them at the end. They prompt this parable from Jesus. Peter says, how many times do I need to forgive? And then Jesus tells them, a parable. So let's walk through the beginning part of the parable once again, and we're going to put special focus on the forgiveness of the king. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So here we have a king who's over his kingdom, and he is settling accounts. He's doing what kings do, right? He's trying to make sure things are in order. And as he's going about this activity, a servant is brought to him who, the text says, owes 10,000 talents. Now, it's important that we try to do the math here. What's going on with these talents? This is an incredibly high amount of money. Now, a talent in the ancient world was something like the equivalent of 20 years' wages. 20 years' wages was a single talent. It was actually the highest known denomination or currency in the ancient Roman Empire. Example for us today, right, is the $100 bill. Comparatively speaking, 20 years' wages is a bit more than a $100 bill, right? That's a single talent. Well, it doesn't stop there, right? It's not just that he owes a talent. He owes 10,000 talents. The Greek word, the single Greek word, is where we get our word myriad from. I don't think Jesus is saying we should calculate the exact amount. Inflation's a little tricky from 2,000 years ago, right? I could give you a number. It's somewhere in the millions and billions, most likely in the billions. Here's what Jesus is getting at. This is an insurmountable debt. 10,000 talents, 20 years wage times 10,000. This is an absolutely insurmountable debt. There was no way the servant could ever pay that back. Now, I know some of you in this room have a long-standing relationship with your friend Sally Mae, right? Maybe some of you have some credit card debt, maybe a mortgage on a house, a car payment, whatever it might be. It would literally be impossible for you to run up this kind of debt in today's world. This is insurmountable. So because it was obvious this servant could not pay it back, he's sentenced to be sold along with his family. 
Now that rightly seems harsh and inhumane for us today, but sadly this was a common practice in the ancient world. And of course with this debt, this would have been a lifetime of servitude for this man and for his family who were affected by his own actions as well. But as we're getting a sense of the situation, it strikes me that the servant might not get the gravity of what's going on. Right? He's sentenced to be sold along with his family, and at the same time, he falls on his knees before the king, and he begins to implore him. And what does he ask for? He asks for more time. Now, I've told you the debt. Right? I've told you how much he owes. He makes a promise, I will pay everything back. You see, I don't think the servant is actually clearly understanding the situation. Here's the reality. The man is asking the wrong question. He did not need patience. He needed forgiveness. But yet he's begging for patience. He's trying to say, I will get this figured out. I will pay it back. And he never could. But then everything beautifully turns on one verse. Verse 27 is a beautiful synopsis of the gospel. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master, the king of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. That is sheer and utter grace and mercy and compassion, isn't it? This man owes billions of dollars, and the king all of a sudden just says, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're released. The king had absolutely no reason to do this. This would have been astonishing, shocking, an injustice, really. This would have been an injustice. How dare the king let this man go? Well, as we look at this verse, I think there's three things to see here, and they all get to the heart of what it really means to forgive. Verse 27 shows us three things about this king that we have to understand in the concept of forgiveness. The first is that he has pity. It says the master has pity on this servant. Now, that word in the Greek is really fascinating. It's the Greek word splognon. Everybody say that together. Ready? Splognon. It's almost like an onomatopoeia. It's almost supposed to sound like it feels, okay? It's a super emotive word. Splognon, when it's used as a noun, literally references the insides of an animal. Like animal sacrifice, like you would clear out the insides. Like that's what in a noun that means. But as a verb, it means you feel so deeply that you feel it on the inside. There's something that's so captivated about this situation that you all of a sudden feel the pain of someone else. It's the idea of pity, of empathy, of compassion. And so as the king looks at this servant, this very misguided, this servant who doesn't seem to understand the situation, he's filled with that inner pity. He has compassion on this man, even though he's racked up this massive debt against him. So number one, he has pity. But secondly... He cancels the debt. He forgives the man all of what he owed. Now, we can't skim over that. In the ancient world, the king literally owned the kingdom. Everything in the kingdom belonged to the king. So for the king to look at this man who owes him this much money and say, you're forgiven of your debt. You know what that means? He is eating the cost himself. He is absorbing this billion-dollar debt upon his own kingdom. Instead of saying, I'm going to get what is owed, he releases this man, he forgives him, and he essentially says, I'm going to absorb the debt. I mean, think about how debt works for a moment. Or imagine just being in an automobile accident, 
Okay, the other week, my wife Molly was bumped while sitting at a red light. It's like the worst case scenario, right? There's enough there. You have to deal with insurance and all of that. So I got to drive around a, a nice white minivan for a few days this week. It was awesome. Um, but how that works, right, is you get hit, and then an estimator comes, and he assesses what the damage is, and then writes a report, files it to all the different parties. You get the car looked at. They either agree, disagree. At the end of the day, there's a nice spreadsheet. The spreadsheet outlines this is what is owed. If my wife and I want our car fixed, guess what? Either someone else is going to pay for it or we're going to pay for it. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to pay. Right? Without the payment, that debt is still going to be there. That issue on my bumper is still going to exist. There always has to be a payment when someone has incurred a debt. And what this king is doing is he's paying it himself. He absorbs the cost himself. He doesn't just wipe it away with a wand. No, he would eat that. He would feel the weight of that. He's laying down his right to demand payment and absorbs the loss. But then thirdly, and very importantly, he releases the man. The king simply lets him go. There's no indication he's going to hold this over the servant. Hey, don't forget what I've forgiven you of. Right? Don't ever forget this act of kindness and charity. There's no indication he's going to keep bringing it up. No, he simply releases this servant who was totally in over his head to a newfound freedom, to a newfound freedom. He doesn't wield it over him. Well, I don't think it's too hard to realize what connection Jesus is making here, right? The parables tell a story to illustrate a truth, and of course the truth of this story is that all of us are the servants, right? We are the servants. We owe an insurmountable debt before the king, not just of an earthly kingdom, but the king of kings, the king over the universe, Right? The scriptures often talk about sin in this language of debt, and we owe a debt on a cosmic scale. We've committed a cosmic treason against the creator and sustainer of the universe by worshiping and serving ourselves and created things and anything and everything but him. And this debt exists, but the good news of the gospel is seen in those three steps of the king. The good news of the gospel is right there. First of all, God has pity on us through Jesus Christ. That word pity, splagnon, it most, it's, it's the word used most often of Jesus' emotional life. Jesus comes as the Son of God in the flesh, and he has pity. He has compassion. He has mercy. He looks at our desperate state and our helplessness and the mess we've got ourselves in, and he feels it himself. He's so moved internally that he has pity on a broken, sinful people. He identifies with us rather than condemning us, though he would be wholly justified to do so. And then Jesus himself absorbs the cost of the debt that is incurred. And specifically here, we have to look to the cross. Right? The cross is a visual picture of what forgiveness requires just on an infinite and cosmic scale. See, later on, the Apostle Paul in Colossians will write these words. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, it is finished. He is drinking the full cup of the wrath of God in our place. 
He is literally absorbing the cost of the debt of our sin so that, number three, we might be set free. So that we might be set free to live as citizens in his kingdom. We are free from our slavery and bondage to sin. I mean, that's literally what's happening in the parable. The man is sentenced to prison. He is in bondage. But yet the king sets him free by an act of mercy. That is our story if you're here and you're in Christ. We were in bondage to sin and to evil and to our desires. But yet the compassion of God shows up. Jesus puts himself in our place. And now we get to live in freedom. Free to love and to obey him and to honor this king in his scandalous, unbelievable offer of forgiveness. So this morning, before we go any further in the parable, I have to ask, is that your story? Is that your story? Have you recognized your debt before a holy and just and righteous God? That is the gospel, that he forgives us of that debt. But we can't receive it until we acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. We can't receive it until we've owned up and said, Lord, yes, I have sinned and I am in desperate need of forgiveness. Or maybe are you like the servant standing before the king and asking for patience? Maybe you this morning are asking the wrong question. Maybe you're trying to clean up your act. You're trying to figure out how you can have enough good deeds to outweigh the bads, how you can just clean things up before you go to the Father, all while failing to recognize that forgiveness is the only way. If that's you this morning, hear this good news. The king has had pity. Jesus has come. He has moved towards us that we are undeserving. And so the response to that is not to try to fix up your act. The response is just give me more time and I'll get this together. No, the response is to cry out in gratitude for forgiveness. So this morning, have you done that? Have you cried out for forgiveness? If not... It's open to you. There's an invitation with the Father to have your insurmountable debt wiped away. I would urge you to do so. But the story doesn't end there. That's the forgiveness of the king, but this parable takes a turn. The king has had pity. He forgives him. He releases him. And then let's look at what the servant does with his newfound freedom. Look at verse 28. <clears throat> but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. I don't know how that hits you, but this is meant to create outrage in the hearer. This is meant to create outrage. How dare this servant act in this way? Again, it's helpful to know what's going on in the context here. He finds this fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. Okay, a denarius was one single day's wage. Okay, so he owes him 100 days' wages, three months' worth of work. Not an insignificant amount, but don't forget what the man was just forgiven of. Yes, he's owed 100 denarii, but he was just forgiven 10,000 talents. But yet this man sees his fellow servant, and he almost is angry. You sense the anger? He's furious. He wants what he 
is owed in a strange twist of irony. Right, throughout the parables, we get a glimpse into the mastery of Jesus' storytelling. You notice how the servant pleads with his forgiven servant in the exact same way? Falls down before him. He begs for mercy. In fact, he's more reasonable. He says, give me time and I'll begin to pay it. Not even offering to pay it all back. I will begin to pay what's going on here. He's far more reasonable, but yet this servant refuses to forgive this man. This literally means he's unwilling to do so. It's not that he couldn't forgive his fellow servant, it's that he wouldn't forgive the debt. He refused, and he's making an active choice here to withhold forgiveness. Now, it's one thing to read about this servant on the page and go, man, what a fool. But we ought to take a look at our own lives for a moment. Because the reality is there's something about the nature of unforgiveness. There's something about not offering, not absorbing that cost of the debt, not offering that newfound freedom. Right? Something about holding that grudge. Something about just, you know, I'm not, I'm not right with you yet. I'm just going to sit here in my anger. If that attracts all of us. Right? There's something in unforgiveness that plucks at all of our heartstrings. And I think we ought to ask the question, why? Well, Paul Tripp, I think, is particularly helpful on this. And I'm summarizing some of his language here, but he, he lists four reasons why we are drawn to uphold that debt, that relational debt. When someone wrongs us, we choose not to forgive because of these reasons. He says, number one, this debt gives us a perceived power. You see, when a wrong has occurred, we now have the ability to hold it over their heads, don't we? You might not literally do that in your conversations, but you can do that in your relationship with them. Right, you can have a relational trump card of sorts, that, man, they've wronged me, so you know, I have to be careful there. I've got to hold them at an arm's distance. We like the idea of others being indebted to us and how this makes us feel. It gives us a perceived upper hand in the relationship. But secondly, debt gives us a sense of a superior identity. Rather than viewing ourselves in light of God, our creator, the king, we begin to compare ourselves to one another. I mean, since they've wronged us, we can slip into thinking, well, I'm just a better person than they are. I would never act in that way towards another person. How dare they act that way towards me? I mean, did you notice in the parable that we're dealing with three characters? A king, a servant, and a fellow servant. But that servant does not treat his other servant as a fellow, does he? And he has a sense of superiority, self-righteousness. Third, debt gives us a feeling of entitlement. When we operate from a posture of what the other person owes us, it colors our entire relationship with them. Right? Carrying wrongs without forgiveness can make us incredibly demanding of another person. And there's no real way for them necessarily to get out of that. We think we deserve things from them that might be entirely unfair and unrealistic. And then lastly, and most dangerously, number four, debt puts us in God's position. It's pretty obvious in the parable, isn't it? How quickly does the man switch from being a beggar to sitting on the throne of a judge? It takes one verse from the man to totally flip into the posture of the judge and of God himself. Right? Though he's a servant, he takes on the role of the king. As Paul Tripp says, it's not our job to make sure they feel the appropriate amount of guilt for what they've done. But it's very tempting to ascend to God's throne and to make ourselves judge and to make them feel the weight of what they've done. 
This is called blasphemy, by the way, in the scriptures. Taking the position of God is a very serious sin. So do you identify with any of those this morning? For me, it was an uncomfortable checklist, right? Do you identify with any of those? Do you feel a pull towards any of those postures? Because I'm guessing you do. And if so, here's the problem. Here's the problem we will eventually run into. The problem is that these perceived benefits of unforgiveness, they simply cannot deliver on their promises. All of those things are sort of a fake-out. Like, yes, you might feel this for a moment, but it ultimately will not be fulfilling. Because here's what we're either scared or too blind to admit. The longer we allow unforgiveness to fester in our hearts and in our souls, and the more we demand and expect the other person to pay the debt that's been occurred, the more we are becoming like the evil that was wrongly done to us. The longer we hold that grudge, the more we get angry, the more we are becoming just like the evil that was done to us. That evil is sinking deep into our soul and it creates a grudge, it creates resentment, it creates cynical feelings. I mean, did you see how visceral the reaction was from the servant? He sees the fellow servant, what does he do? He doesn't go, hey man, don't you owe me some money? No, he literally chokes the guy out. He says, give me what I'm owed. He is angry. Right? We might not act out physically in that way, but if that's happening below the surface, that's beginning to boil, it's eventually going to spill over. And so we can't trust those false promises of unforgiveness. Let's keep reading in the story. What happens next? What are the consequences of this? Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. You could translate that outraged. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debts because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. You see, the emphasis here in the conversation with the king is the inconsistency in the servants. The king keeps pointing out the massive debt, this massive amount of debt that this servant had been forgiven and how unthinkable it would be for him to act this way. See, what this shows is that this servant had a transactional relationship with the king, but not a personal one. He enjoyed the benefits that the king was going to now give him, right? I owed this massive debt. He's been generous to me. Great. Thank you. Cold and disconnected from any relationship with the king. Transactionally, he receives that, but it has not taken root in his heart. That kindness, that pity, that compassion, that freedom that is offered, it doesn't stick. See, elsewhere, Paul would warn of this very same behavior in Romans. His words are fitting with this parable. He says in Romans 2, 4, and 5, talking to those who are self-righteous, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's exactly what happens in the story, isn't it? 
We are not to presume upon the riches of God's kindness. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to draw us to change. So presuming on the kindness of God in this way, it simply has consequences. Paul says it in this parable. Paul says it in Romans and this parable teaches it. This kind of blatant disregard for the king, it can't just go unchecked. And so this wicked servant is handed over to the jailers. Now, this word jailers is a light term in the English, to say the least. If you have a little footnote there, you might follow it down in your Bible. That word jailers is torturers. The servant is delivered over to the torturers. This is a not-so-subtle hint that unrepentant sin, that presuming upon the riches of the kindness of God's grace, that settling into a constant state of unforgiveness, it begins to eat us up. It's like torment. It's not actually freedom. That unforgiveness, it ultimately is a poison within us. It's torture. But I also want to be clear, while unforgiveness is painful, so too is forgiveness, isn't it? Listen, I don't want you to wrongly hear me here. I know there are real wounds in this room this morning. There are real-life scenarios where you have been significantly harmed by someone you thought you could trust. I'm sure there are many of you in this room who have long-standing, broken relationships with your families. Those are real harms. Those are real hurts that have taken place. So don't hear me flippantly this morning. But just as unforgiveness is painful to us, so too is forgiveness. It hurts. Every time we don't take revenge, it hurts. Every time we don't hold that over their head, it's painful. But at the end of the day, we only have two options. When a wrong has occurred, we either forgive or we don't forgive. We either demand full restitution, you will pay me back, or we absorb the cost. And here's the problem in our relationships. We can't measure hurts and harms in the same way that an adjuster did so on my bumper this week. I can't measure the harm of the relational hurt on a spreadsheet and then map out a specific plan for how that would pay it back. It's just, it's just not realistic. It's just not how it works. Our wounds run deeper than that. And so let me plead with you that although both are painful, both unforgiveness and forgiveness hurt, one of those hurts, I think, leads to a resurrection. One of those hurts leads to freedom and life. I love what Pastor John Uwacheka says. He says, unforgiveness is a relief that brings lasting hurt. But forgiveness is a hurt that brings lasting relief. Listen, brothers and sisters, we can forgive others, and we can forgive others of horrible things. You know why? Because we can do so with the knowledge that God's not a God who just looks over sin. God's not a God who is unjust. God is a just God. And listen, every single sin will be judged. But here's the thing. As Christians, we know that it will be judged in one of two places. Either it will already have been judged on Jesus on the cross, where he bore our sins in his body on the tree, or it will be dealt with at the last day. Listen, when we forgive, it's not, quote-unquote, letting someone off the hook. No, we forgive because we know that justice will be served. We know that God will deal with it. And praise be to God that he's gone to the cross, that Jesus has absorbed the cost of that debt. 
So when a brother in Christ sins against another brother in Christ or a sister in Christ sins against another sister in Christ, you're not really absorbing that debt. Sure, you are in a relational sense, but that debt is absorbed on Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, that allows us to be a forgiving people. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it seems like maybe the worst thing we could possibly do for ourselves, but that hurt brings a lasting relief. It leads to life. But here's the thing. We will never get there unless we grasp verse 33. We will never get there unless we grasp the weight of this question that is asked to every single one of us. The the king looks at the servant. He says, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This is clearly the point of the parable. The question that looms over all of us is, is Jesus urging us to consider our own debt before the Father, our own debt before the King. Do you believe you're the biggest sinner you know? Do you really believe that? Do you believe you're the biggest sinner you know? Listen, I don't have access. I'm sure we're all big sinners in here, okay? Welcome to the party. I don't have access to your intentions. I don't have access to your thoughts. I don't have access to your impulses. You know who does? You do. And are all of those righteous? Are all of those holy? Of course not. Jesus is saying, do you view yourself as the biggest sinner? Do you view your need for forgiveness as bigger than your brother or sister's need for forgiveness? And if so, you will freely offer it. If so, you will feel the enormity of the grace of Jesus, and then we will be a people who exude that grace to others, even though they might be undeserving. When we realize we've been forgiven of an infinite debt, we are compelled and empowered to turn and forgive others. That is the spirit of Jesus at work in the church. Have you grasped that? Or is there unforgiveness in your heart? Listen, if you're here this morning and there is unforgiveness in your heart, if there's resentment and if there's bitterness that's there, what work might need to be done there? I mean, I would urge you to begin vertically. Begin before the Lord before you then move horizontally to those around you. Now, lastly, Let's talk about the life of forgiveness. I don't know if you've caught this in the parables yet, but oftentimes Jesus will kind of drop in like the bombshell moment right at the end. So he's telling this parable, he's got a captive audience, right? They're grasping the the wickedness of this servant who was forgiven but then refused to offer it. And then in verse 35, he looks at those who are gathered and says this, so also my father, my heavenly father, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's a sobriety about that verse, isn't there? If you refuse to forgive your brother in your heart, guess what? The same thing that happened to that servant is going to happen to you according to Jesus. You see, Jesus is saying there's an assumption in my kingdom. It must be marked by a life of forgiveness amongst its citizens. It is the entrance to the kingdom and it is the ethic that sustains that kingdom. Forgiveness is all over the kingdom of heaven. And notice the level of forgiveness. We must forgive our brothers and sisters from our heart. The heart is the center of being in the scriptures. If you're here this morning and you don't think that forgiveness is hard, I want to challenge you for a moment. If you don't view this as being a really hard thing for you, oh yeah, I'm very forgiving, it's really easy for me to do so, I'm not sure you've grasped forgiveness. Jesus says it must be from the heart 
must be from the center of our being. We have to feel the weight of what that means to absorb the cost of somebody else's sins. So outwardly, if all your relationships are fine, is that the case in your heart? Or is there something stirring up there? But Jesus is indicating here how we forgive or how we choose not to forgive is the basis on how we're judged. This is not the only place that Jesus says that, by the way. This seems to be, forgiveness seems to be the litmus test of the fruit of the Christian life. At the end of the uh, Lord's Prayer, in the center of the, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. You see, it seems to be the litmus test. Now, I don't think Jesus is redefining salvation here. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But I love what one commentator has said. I think this is helpful. Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our forgiving of others. What he is saying is that the pride which keeps us from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us from accepting forgiveness. If we refuse to offer forgiveness, there is a pride that's beginning to well up within us. We are failing to see our own debts. And the longer that happens, the more we will be turned off from the grace of God towards us. That pride will keep us not only from offering that forgiveness, but from receiving it. And you and I need forgiveness. We need forgiveness on a daily basis. And the more, un, the more unforgiveness there is in our soul, the more we'll be shut off to that life-giving life forgiveness of the gospel. Now, pastorally, I need to say this. Forgiveness does not mean enabling. Forgiveness is not just the idea of forgive and forget. I know for some of you, there's situations of abuse in your past. Maybe there's abuse going on right now. Jesus is not saying forgive and then just continue to allow that to happen. We know why, number one, because of the context, by the way. Immediately before this, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, is the context of church discipline. Where Jesus says, hey, don't let sin go unchecked in your midst. Be proactive in love to call out sin when you see it. And if sin continues, you must deal with it. So Jesus is not saying forgive and forget. It doesn't mean enabling here. Directly before this, that, that concept of church discipline is critical. Because that reminds us that we cannot control every situation. Right, by the way, that happens in the parable. The king offers that forgiveness. The servant throws it in his face. Does that make the forgiveness any less valid? Forgiveness has far more to do with what's going on in your own heart and in your own life than really the other person. Listen, there might be situations where you can forgive someone from your heart. You can honestly forgive and release them, but releasing them means letting them go. Releasing them doesn't mean a perfectly restored relationship. Wisdom still needs to be used here. Paul says in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. If possible, do all that you can, but it doesn't mean you line yourself up for harm again. We use wisdom. We lean on others in the church for discernment, and we offer forgiveness from our hearts regardless of how it might be received. Now, as we close, I actually want to go back to the beginning of the story. Skipped over those verses. Remember, Peter here is coming to Jesus. He goes to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him. As many as seven times. The rabbis, by the way, said three. 
three was satisfactory. So Peter, and his, we love Peter, don't we? Peter in his mind is probably like, all right, I'm going to shoot for a higher, nice biblical number, right? Seven. Jesus, if we do seven, aren't we good? I mean, we love Peter. He's just like us. And then Jesus responds, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, there's some confusion in the Greek. Is this 70 times seven? Is this 77 times? Is this 70 times 70? It's, it's a little ambiguous. But Jesus is not getting at a precise number. It's a figure of speech. In fact, I think he's beautifully alluding to a violent story in the Old Testament. Genesis 4, this guy named Lamech. He boasts of his killing and his revenge, and he says that the Lord's revenge is sevenfold, but Lamech's is 77-fold. He's saying unlimited revenge. Jesus comes on the scene, and in his kingdom, it's unlimited forgiveness. It's not unlimited revenge. It's unlimited forgiveness. He's saying this, if you're counting, you're not forgiving. Some translations of 1 Corinthians 13 say in that love chapter that love keeps no record of wrong. And that is how the kingdom and life in the kingdom is meant to be. It's meant to be unlimited forgiveness, not revenge, not holding grudges, but recognizing the depth of our own forgiveness and then being ready to forgive others. Jesus is saying, be in a posture, not of defensiveness, not of anger, not of allowing this to fester, but be in a posture of just forgiveness. Be gracious and kind to one another. I love how Paul says this in Colossians as we close. He says, put on then, like an article of clothing, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. But how do we forgive each other? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Listen, forgiven people will forgive others. That's what life in the kingdom looks like. So this morning, you asked for forgiveness before your king. Is there unforgiveness in your relationships? And if so, I beg you, I beg you to deal with your king who has graciously forgiven you of a far greater debt, an insurmountable debt that we could not pay so that we can forgive others and display the good news of the gospel as we do so. Let's pray.